What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success in and out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares to set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys I was in Leavenworth with. We're going to talk about life before prison, life in prison, and life out of prison. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that will help you knock down some of the prisons you've built up in your own mind. Folks, I've got with me today, Corbin, we're going to make sure I say this right, Bolsovac, there it goes, I messed it up, Bolsovac, Corbin Basilovac, I actually walked over this with him before, because I've always just called him Corbin, Basilovac which is, I even phonetically spelled it out, and it still didn't work, Basilovac. So, Corbin, we're going to just go with Corbin, but I did get it right finally, Basilovac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You bet. So I, I told Corbin before we got on here, I want to, and Corbin and I were together at Leavenworth, obviously, and um, Corbin has written a book. It's called On to the Next Thing. Uh, I've read his book. It's a very good book. But I wanted to read the last uh, or the the back uh, cover because I kind of think it gives a good vibe of, of the story that he wrote and who he is and how honest and, and forthcoming he is about just putting it all out there. But it reads this. This is a true story about a man's struggle through a time in his life when choices led him astray. From college graduate and Fortune 1000 salesman, To black market drug dealing, crime emerged as an everyday event. Illicit drugs and illegal commerce became profitable and daunting, while the danger of these activities began to creep closer and closer by the hour. With federal prison as the catalyst, there was a chance that he would not recover. Being a fearful time, the crippling anxiety overshadowed any hope that he had left. But his life was rebuilt with a new foundation. These changes did not come easily or quickly, but anything worthwhile never does. This is truly a story of redemption. On to the next thing is an exceptional read about not giving up on life, no matter how far you have fallen. Our individual journeys do not necessarily unfold as we've planned, but it is our experiences that shape our time. These experiences during this time, are his story. Corbin, I really uh, am excited about talking with you today. Uh, I'm excited about your book. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. We've, we've shared back and forth here the last few months. Uh, your book uh, is a few months ahead of my book, and we've, we've kind of shared, uh, you've given me some tips on, on things to think about, and um, just excited to have you as a guest, Corbin. Welcome. Thank you, Brent. Welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. So you've been busy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, uh, Corbin, you've been out, been back home, what, three years? Right about three years. Exactly. Yeah. And this is an unusual thing. We've got a Mizzou Tiger talking to a Kansas Jayhawk. So this is how we <laughs> were brought together. Leavenworth right. brought the Tiger and the Jayhawk <laughs> together. And I was kind of living on your turf over there in Kansas. So you were, we, we accepted you. We'll put it that way. <laughs> well, Corbin, tell me, you know, you were one of those guys that you, you kind of, 
you did your thing. You, you had been other places. So I, I want to get into all that. But take me back to Corbin as a kid growing up, because I know you were in the sports and you had normal parents and everything was kind of a cool town you were in. Just walk me through that. Well, uh, I grew up in a rural town, rural college town outside of Kansas City, and it was quintessential. You know, you cruise the streets in your car and you go to Sonic and get ice cream with girls and you play high school football and all that sort of stuff. Go to dances, enjoy yourself, listen to music. And so it was great. I mean, my father was a doctor. My mother was went to every sporting event for us. So I ended up going to KU, like you said. Uh, I didn't play any sports there. I played a lot of intramural sports, though, and I worked at the college newspaper. Uh, enjoyed it. And then I liked uh, the sales aspect of being in journalism. So when I got out of college, I worked in, for a tech company in Kansas City. We sold Internet services and software and things like that. So I was in outside sales. And I got real busy. Uh, I mean, worked hard and loved it. Uh, made good money right out of college, what I thought it was good money. And, and uh, just got real busy. And I was working with a group of guys. And we were all doing fantastic. And we'd go to, you know, after the first year, we realized we were doing real well. So we'd go to happy hours. And we'd stay out and, and uh, reward ourselves for uh-huh. our, for our success. And then the happy hours got to be more and more and longer and longer. And I guess over the course of several years of the – the success in the corporate world, we, we got into drugs a little bit and the drugs escalated. It, we'd still go to work every day. We'd yeah. Stay up late, still go to work every day. It didn't really affect us. To that You're extent. young. But, you uh, can do that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Party all I mean, night you know, and get up and work I, the next day. Work hard, play hard, yeah. you know, that, that mentality. And so uh, one thing led to another. Um, a lot of things led to this, me not working at that job anymore. But I got to the point where I had connections to get the drugs that kept us up. And instead of working at the job anymore, I just concentrated on the drug part of it. I had this thing in me where I, even growing up, where I always wanted to please people. I wanted everybody to like me. And I wanted, you know, to be that dude, be very likable. And I was like that all the way through college. And in this sense, finally, when I was able to get get the drugs in the corporate world, I they liked it. You know, on the weekends, I was the guy. I, I helped them out. You know, I helped them find their reward. Was and it so easy, that, Corbin, was it easy for you to get the, the hookup with the drugs? Or was that one of the things that drew you to that? Was it a was it a thing that you didn't have to think much about and you got a lot of reward out of by being the guy that had the drugs? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was easy at first, just like anything else. You got to meet the right people. And and it, it probably took years mm-hmm. to finally get to the point where, so where you get quantities. So it got to the point where on the weekends, sometimes we did drugs, sometimes we didn't, but they if we wanted it, we wanted them. We didn't want to have to mess around. And so it got to the point, sometimes we couldn't get the drugs and it was a disappointment. And I thought, ha ha, if I just have the drugs on me and then I, I, I'll be the guy that can please everybody again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then, so I, I ended up getting quantities of drugs, keeping it in my, in my house. And when people wanted them, I would provide them. And it's very profitable. As, as, I mean, yeah. whether you've sold drugs or not, you know, that there's a lot of money in it. And so, uh, years later, I ended up not working in the corporate world anymore and just concentrating on the drugs. And that didn't did that, happen overnight. Corbin, did that skew you? Uh, did you lose interest in your work uh, because you were getting drifting further into the drug trade? Funny enough, I, no. Um, I maybe didn't pay attention to work as much, but it didn't really hurt my productivity. Uh, mm-hmm. 
probably because I was young enough to be able to, you know, go on a little bit of sleep or no sleep, but it it wasn't necessarily affecting my work, you know. What age would you have been then? Oh, mid twenties, mid to late twenties. By the time I started getting into the drugs. So I guess one of the things about that is, is you were doing well in your job. So you had dollars and you could actually maybe support getting that sideline going, which if you probably weren't doing well in your work, you wouldn't have had the mm-hmm. extra dollars to go and invest and do that. Right. If you want to get quantities, you need thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to go get a good quantity. And then, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's the case. Did you feel like uh, as you were getting deeper into that, were you dealing with more unsavory people or was it, Everybody looked like you, acted like you, or how did that world work? Oh, heck no. It was two different worlds. You know, I would drive to the east side of Kansas City and deal with people that did not look like me. I was still wearing a suit with my tie loosened up after work, mm-hmm. you know, maybe slung my jacket over my shoulder. <laughs> and they, no, they, they did not look like me. They looked like what you would imagine a drug dealer would look like. Yeah. Uh, black, white, Mexican, it didn't matter, you know, and... And uh, it, it, that didn't happen overnight. It was choices over the course of many years, little small choices that happened. That I now that I look back, it was apparent. You know, it was obvious. But at the time, you don't think about those little choices every day that you make and every week that just slowly lead you down a path to where you're paying less attention to work and then eventually just quit and then just start concentrating on transition into the black market business. I think that's a good tip, just in general, isn't it? You. If you don't pay attention to the small things, you can get off on the wrong path and then all of a sudden it gets blurry on the other side and you don't even recognize that path and you're off on this other place and it feels more familiar. That's one of the things I concentrate a lot in my book because I want it to be an enlightening book to help people. And that's the subtitle of the book. It's a memoir, memoir on crime, choices, and change. Right. And the choices are a big part of that. Yeah. So tell me, Corbin, when, when this starts happening and you start pretty much becoming a, a guy that people know, uh, d- what, how did you feel? Did you feel like you were, was it, ex- uh, did you feel exhilarated? Did you start to get scared as things started to get bigger in that world? Uh, what, what were you feeling? I would say all those things. If, sometimes if you're scared, you're also exhilarated and, and it's, and you're, you have anxiety and all those things. Yeah. But I, I lived down on the plaza. I drove a nice car and I would go, you know, as I drifted away from the corporate world and got into the black market world, I, I started dealing. I, I treated it like a, another corporate job, really. And then yeah. maybe that's why I got, quote, successful at it, because, I, you know, I had a route and I had people that I would use on that route. And it was like a, like I was making sales calls almost. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting time. And that's another thing I didn't even realize at the time. But as I look back at it, that's exactly what it was. I just replaced it. Well, I know you had a girlfriend, because um, that's obviously in the book. Uh, did she know what all was going on? Or did, were you were you a kind of compartmentalized that this is Corbin over here and this is Corbin the drug dealer here? I certainly tried to keep it compartmentalized. Uh, but she knew, but I would lie. And mm-hmm. so she, you know, when you're lying to somebody, they, they're just skeptical of you all the time anyway. So that's basically what it was. She didn't want me to do what I was doing, whether it was doing the drugs or selling the drugs. She knew it was detrimental to my, my soul. So, uh, no, she didn't, she, but I lied a lot. So she was just always kept in the dark and yeah. didn't believe me. Yeah. When did you start feeling like it was 
getting, or did you start feeling like things were getting out of control? Uh, several times, you know, if I, there were times where I owed people upwards of 70 or 80 grand and that's in cash. That's not to a bank. That's yeah. in cash to people that come and get it from you one way or another. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's not like you file bankruptcy. And so uh, there were times where I got up to that point and I'd work my way back down. And every time I worked my way back down, I was like, okay, good. I'm at a point where I don't, I don't got to do that again. Mm-hmm. And then months would go by and I would just do it again. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a challenge. I saw it as a challenge to myself. Yeah. Let me go see if I can get somebody to front me $30,000 worth of drugs so I can try to sell them and, and again, please them. Right. Right. The whole pleasing thing came in to, yeah. you, you were pleasing mm-hmm. a lot of people that were counting on you to supply them. Yeah. 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 So uh, we were talking about this. You're in your book. It reads like a movie script when things get crazy. Uh, did you know that you were on the radar uh, that they were looking at you? Not necessarily. It was a surprise when they showed up when they, they showed up to my house that day and busted in my front door. Um, I didn't exactly know, but you always kind of think, you know, you're always worried, but I didn't know. I, I was not. There wasn't uh, like a tip impression. or something that said, Hey, you know, these, mm-hmm. these feds are looking at you over here. There, there's somebody's kind of sneaky that's been keeping his eye on you or any of those type things. Nothing. You like always that. think stuff or hear stuff, but not specifically. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me about the night that it happened. Okay. Well, yeah. And this is what's exciting because this is like the first chapter of the book. And I did that on purpose because I thought I wanted it to read like a movie. Mm-hmm. And so it was a night where I was running the, the regular route around the plaza and it got to be, I don't know, nine, 10 o'clock at night. And that's still fairly early in this sense. And so I, I got a call. I had to stop back home. I had to get a certain amount. I think I had to get some pills or something. I don't remember. Um, and so I stopped back home to kind of, drop money off in the safe. So I wasn't carrying around a bunch of money and then pick up a few of the things that I could go and continue on my route. And so as I did, did you ever so, lose money, part- Corbin? I mean, did you I mean, oh, carrying all that cash? <laughs> I found a lot of money in the washing machine. I'll put yeah. And uh, I don't mean that as a, as a laundering joke. I mean, like, uh, I, yeah, I just found money and I, yeah, I lost money. I lost drugs. I yeah. gave money away. I gave drugs. Yes. It was just crazy. Yeah. Not, not very organized. Yeah. Right. And so uh, I, I parked my car in the neighbor's driveway because my house on the plaza did not actually have a driveway. Um, so I use my neighbor's driveway all the time. She didn't care. Um, well, for people who don't know Kansas City, uh, the plaza is a very nice area of town. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where all the nice things are in, in the plaza in the Kansas City area. Right. And I was two blocks north of the plaza, of the plaza proper. It's yeah. right there. And so pulled into the driveway, went inside got busy doing what I'm dropping money off and getting some more drugs to go sell. And so, uh, within I had, okay. I, I had a, uh, a second floor is where I kept everything. I had a camera system set up where I had cameras looking outside, some cameras looking in the house. I had a camera looking down the street cause I was high anxiety. High anxiety. Right. <laughs> and, uh, well, I happened to be sitting in front of my cameras. And I happened to see him burst with illumination and I happened to see a car pull, or a van pull up and, I happened to see you guys jumping out of the front and I was like, holy crap, this is it. Yeah. And I had, I only had a, you know, less than a minute to prepare myself. I wasn't surprised by them knocking the door down. I, I so I had enough time to watch them run through the yard. So I kind of stuffed the stuffed the phone in my pocket, stuffed some things away. And, and then within about 20 seconds, I jumped out the second story window that faced the front yard. 
as they burst in the door right beneath, right beneath that window. And so, and, and I landed and I thought, holy crap, I landed. Mm-hmm. I didn't break anything. And then I, then I just got up and ran. I, I should have ran the other way, but I happened to run towards a bunch of cars uh, angled in at the street, at the head of the street. And, and there was agents kind of milling around up there, looking at each other, waiting for me to be brought out. And all of a sudden I'm running towards them and I'm still running towards them and they're not paying attention. I'm still running towards them and they're not paying attention. I get within 10 feet of them before they even look up and I kind of yell at them what's going on in my head. Like what the, you know, yeah. type, type of thing. And they look surprised and I look surprised. And they I'm, had to have been really know. surprised, Corbin, that the guy they were trying <laughs> to get was running towards them. Yeah. And I, I was yelling at them and I was high on drugs and they were just pissed and surprised. So, and my girlfriend happened to live um, three blocks away. So I ran directly towards her house, but not in a direct route. I should say it was jumping over fences, going through backyards, going through a little doorway that led through another garage, you know, all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is all detailed in the whole first chapter. I'm kind of breezing through it, but uh, it, it's. Yeah. It's a pretty gripping story right off your book. Right at the first. Chapter. I remember it all, but I did. I got away temporarily. It didn't last. I ended up in the hospital before I went to jail that night because uh, they tackled me in her house. They, I finally got to my girlfriend's house. They tackled me in her house. They kicked in the door. They, they slammed me on the floor. She had just got out of the shower. She was crying on her knees. Mm. Uh, you know, I had a gun to my head and a foot on my neck because they didn't know if I was armed. Mm-hmm. Can't blame them. I ran away, right. you know. Um, and, yeah, it, it, I ended up passing out couldn't breathe or hyperventilated. And so I ended up in the, the hospital. But there's a lot of details in there. <laughs> it just makes it even more shocking. Well, yeah. So your your girlfriend obviously is in complete shock. I mean, somebody's busted down her door. You're, you've got a gun to your head and you pass out. She doesn't even know if that's, you know, if you're okay. You end up in the hospital and then what's going through your head? Uh, I'm thinking I'm screwed. <laughs> and I'm thinking that hospital bed is going to be the last cushiony bed that I'm going to, I'm going to feel for a long time. Yeah. I thought maybe a year. I thought I was like, I thought maybe I'd just go to jail right then and there for a year. That's basically what was in my head, Mm -hmm. but I knew I was screwed and I was scared and I was nervous and I was pissed and I was worried about money and worried about what was going to happen to all my stuff and just worried about people and if people or, or if anybody cared at all, you know, just all the things. Your parents. Yeah, it was the yeah the family just disappointing that you know all yeah. the they, nobody nobody was aware of all this that was going on. Right. So the um, so you, you get from the hospital. Where do you go? Uh, where do they take you there after that? They they take me to the city jail downtown Kansas City, and can't be a good place. Uh, I don't think you any know it, jails are. No, it was the first time I'd really ever been in the jail. Uh, not, it was the first time. And, uh, it's, you know, I don't even know how to describe that to somebody because it's just so depressing and deflating and everything is just all your energy is being sapped from you and all your things are being taken from you and all your just worries are compounding on you. And it's just, it's the craziest, worst feeling ever. And, and it doesn't go away and you know, it's not going to go away. It's just going to keep getting worse every time you go behind another locked door and another locked door until you're in a small room by yourself and you're thinking, and you're not told anything and you're thinking, am I going to be here for 20 minutes or 20 days or what, 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 you know? Yeah. Don't you think that's one of the more uh, 
as far as torturing your mind, and they and obviously they do it on purpose, but you have no idea what the next step is. You have no information, and they make sure you don't have any information. So each step you take, uh, nothing's told to you until somebody tells you what you need to do. And that's all you get is that one more bit of information, right. not the whole story ever. Right. And you can't rest. You know, you can't, uh, you kind of, I, I was in maybe a holding cell for several hours and there was 25 other guys in there and it's mm-hmm. busy and not big. Mm-hmm. And so I carved out a little corner, but I, but I was worried that, you know, crap, am I in somebody else's corner? <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know what real estate's at a premium in there. Yeah. So but just the whole thing. <laughs> You're just worried about not doing anything wrong to get yourself in a horrible situation. How long do you stay in the county jail there, the city jail? I was I was only in that city jail um, less than less than 48 hours. Okay, uh, a little more than a day. They ended up I ended up getting out on some kind of they ended up they ended up charging me pretty quick with a federal crime though, because mm-hmm. uh, they ended up finding a gun in my house and they found quantities of drugs, and so I was let out and I thought. I kind of thought I was getting, I don't know. You don't know if you've never gone through it. I thought maybe I'm going to get off this or maybe they're just going to, maybe they're like, don't do it again, young man. And that's going to be it. Mm-hmm. But that's not it. Mm-hmm. That's, that was just the beginning. So the next step, did you go, now that you're out, um, they've released you. They've, I guess you're thinking, getting an attorney, trying to figure out what, what they have, how you get to defend yourself. What was going through your head on that? Yeah, I got an attorney pretty quick, went and talked to him, and quickly he was like, well, you know, we might be able to get you less than a decade in prison, mm-hmm. might, and I said, what do you mean might? What do you mean decade? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, well, they're gonna, it looks like they're going to try to charge you with conspiracy, and that can be a mandatory minimum of five years or maybe even 15 years. I, he's like, I'm just sorting through this all right now, and I was like, wait a minute, what? What are you talking about? Maybe five, maybe... I was like, I've never been in trouble before. And I, I promise I won't do this ever again. Right, just, you, right. know, <laughs> you know, this is, this is wrong. This is a bad idea. I just, I made bad choices. Don't you think like, that's, yeah, uh, Corbin, one of the scarier things is, is that when you start getting and walking down this path and you start talking to the attorney and they start stacking, uh, do, like, like in my world, you know, a wire fraud or mail fraud, anything you ever mailed or anything you ever wired, that's one charge, but they can charge you however many times they want to of how many, you know, you probably did that for 20 years, mailed out something. So they could give you each one of those is a 20 year minimum. All of a sudden, you know, you're looking at hundreds of years and you're thinking, my God, this is, this is, uh, this can't get any worse. This, This, this looks like overwhelmingly hopeless. It is like say I beat half the charges and they still want to have the other half. It gives you 20 years. Yeah. You almost think to yourself now, this isn't how it really is. No way. This is how it really is. Yeah. But but that's how they, like I've heard you say before on some of your other interviews, that's how they have a 97% conviction rate. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, if you're indicted, 97% of the people plead because they're looking at the option that, you know, lends itself to, if you lose, you're going to be in for life. Yeah. Um, so Corbin, you, you get the attorney, you start talking, how, what's the time period here of when you uh, basically get your charges to deciding, am I going to fight this? Am I going to plea? What was it? What, what time period were you dealing with? Immediately? I wanted to fight it. Yeah. Thinking that I had a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there, there was a good six months where I, I we kept getting uh, we kept delaying the actual uh, going to court. And then uh, I finally, and then my attorney who I was paying for, um, he kept kind of telling me, you know, look, we got to go do this. I mean, sooner or later, you can't just keep uh, getting continuances. And yeah. and, uh, and and they're basically, you know, here's your, you know, they give you that uh, that scale of this equals this and this equals this, and so this is what you're going to get. I said, well, what do you mean? Like that's it? Like there's no like this. I fit into a scale, and so now I'm going to go away from it. And he's like, "Well, that's how it works in the federal system. So let's go do it." And I was like, kind of like, you know, let's go get a hamburger. Let's go. Let's go put you in prison. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I really did. Um, I delayed it out because I ended up switching attorneys, mm-hmm. and that that got me another delay because I, I again, I thought maybe another attorney would have a better uh, better plan of action. Yeah. And so, but he he kind of didn't. He did have a little bit better, but it's. I mean, I still got. And I still went to prison. So, but I was out of prison for over a year before I actually pleaded. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you finally, they throw you a plea bargain. What was your plea bargain? Uh, they offered me, well, they wanted me to plead to uh, 25 years okay. to start with. And that's where the other attorney, the second attorney, I believe actually did a good job. He was like, look, he, look, he, he did the whole, he's never, I think they got a safety valve, you know, where he, He's a first-time offender, and he's nonviolent, mm-hmm. and so I probably would have got less time, but I had a gun, mm-hmm. and so there was no way they could get around the gun charge, which is, was an automatic five years, mm-hmm. and then they pleaded me down to a uh, conspiracy to distribute cocaine, and that, that actually only stacked with the other charge was only two and a half years. Okay. So I got seven and a half years, 90 months is what it ended up being. It's a long time. 60 months and, th- and 30 months, yes. So you go in, uh, what's the night life? What's your night before playing? Like, is that a restless night or is that a night where you feel like I'm, I'm relieved that I've come to a decision? Well, funny enough, I got sleep. I don't know how, I mean, it may have only been a handful of hours, but I really did get some sleep. Um, you know, I, (laughs) it was not, not a healthy, uh, 24 hours beforehand. It was a sad time. Uh, but I spent time with my girlfriend who I, you know, who was supportive up to that point. Um, and I, and her and I were very physical those last couple of nights because we knew that like, that, that was it. And I knew if I'm going, I'm going away, you know, I don't know, I know what happens to you go to prison. There's no, you know, mm-hmm. if you like females, that's the wrong place to be. Right. And so there, there's that. Um, but it, it was completely and horribly sad. Yeah. Yeah. Totally sad. It's the worst mm-hmm. of the, you know, that the next whatever is going to be where you don't want to be and you don't mm-hmm. know what, and you really don't know what it's going to be like. You just know you've got to go do it. And there's really not a feeling. I don't think Corbin, I can, can't really think back to any feeling I've ever had like that where you, you know, that you have to do it. It's going to be scary because it's, a, you know, fear of the unknown. Nobody likes fear of the unknown. But when you're dealing with fear of the unknown going into a federal prison, um, there's an awful lot that kicks into your mind and takes over your mind yeah. for a while. The one thing I was most worried about is not like, you know, the extreme things like getting beat up or, you know, every, the stuff you see in movies. Yeah. It was just being treated horribly every day. Like, say I was getting extorted mm-hmm. or uh, not getting my food taken away from me at the chow hall or uh, not being able to get along with anybody. Things like that. Because, um, 
if I'm going to get beat up, I'm going to get beat up. Like, I just kind yeah. of accept that. If that's, if that's really what's going to happen, that's going to happen. But I, I mean, I know that the day to day of 90 months, you got to be able to get by and your mental health has to be uh, acute or else you're just, yeah. you're going to turn into mush and you're going to end up being a, a product of your environment. And so that's, that's what worried me the most. Well, so, you know, seven and a half years did, uh, how long did you have to wait to get the letter to tell you where you were going? I never did. You never I, did. I, they took, okay. So what happened was I went to a, a, um, a hearing okay. and I thought that, you know, after that hearing I would leave and, you know, go back and then wait for the letter, Right. get sentenced, wait for the letter. But they took me at that point. That had to have been a surprise. I mean, nothing was, yes, it was, but at that, you know, at some point, nothing's a surprise anymore. You know, you think that you're going to be treated fairly or you think that you're going to, you know, anything. So it was disappointing, uh, but I wasn't completely surprised. Where did you go? So you, that's everybody's fear. I mean, as we're, as we're talking about this, Corbin, that's everybody's mm-hmm. fear going into the hearing. And they say, well, you know, the, the option is they're going to either let you go out of the hearing after they sentence you, and then you'll be able to have a couple of months with your family to sit, you know, everything up, you know, to get gone. Or mm-hmm. they will handcuff you immediately and you'll be taken away. In, in all honesty, for the year before I went to prison, I kind of tried to start getting my things in order, be, my life in order, because I was scared they were going to take me away at any point in time. Yeah. They never said they were going to do that, but I was just nervous. And, and I was a wreck anyway. Yeah. So. Uh, did you have any problem, like, because you said you were taking drugs along the way? Did Was there, did because you were in that time period, was that a way for you to kind of wean yourself out of that or? It was, and that, that's a good, um, it's a good thing I write about in my book. There's a good chapter about how I finally just kick it, kick the habit, kick the disgust of being on drugs, you know, and, and it's, it, it's more, it wasn't AA meetings or NA meetings or stuff like that. It was just finally the sheer will and it's explained in detail in there. Yeah. yeah I, I, won't, I won't explain it right now, but it's, I call it the 15 minute plan and it's not, a, I call it how to kick a habit in 15 minutes. <laughs> that's just, part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where did they take you when, uh, so you got handcuffed and taken out of the hearing. Where, where did you end up yep. from there? Uh, uh, after the holding cell in downtown, I was, uh, where they take me to Osceola, Missouri, okay. St. Clair County, uh, which was, man, I mean, you're locked in a small room, you're locked in a small room, the size of a bathroom all day and let out into a day room, the size of an apartment living room mm-hmm. to eat. And then you're let out in a cage the size of a garage mm-hmm. you're not outside just in a basement for wreck and so i and i was there for seven months i didn't see the outside for that long and you're just waiting to go yeah so when do you how do you find out or what they just come and get you one day when you're there and say you're we're taking mm-hmm. you away you, you kind of get to know the process how other guys you see other guys come and go and so you know that you're going to be there for a certain amount of time. And they say anywhere between six and nine months, you're going to be there. Then you're going to go on to the next spot and you're going to finally get it. Uh, get, I get what, what should have been like your letter or where you're going to be, uh, mm-hmm. where they're going to ship you to permanently. I, uh, after going through several places, other holding facilities, I was uh, sent to a permanent spot in Forest City, Arkansas, which is near Memphis. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's where I spent the first little bit of chunk, you know, about a year my time after being through several different places before that. What, then, what was that experience like there? Forest City is exactly what you can imagine a big institutional um, prison being like huge. I mean, hundreds of acres, 
probably thousands of acres really, and just razor wire everywhere. And there's different buildings, and some's a max, part of it's a medium, part of it's a low. They even had a little camp outside the fence there, but there's razor wires and like little uh, walkways going everywhere. And mm. so it's just. So were you um, in a were you in a low? I was that was a low, yes. So and, if I explain because that I know a lot of the people don't know, you know the the big difference between the, like the camp and the low and the medium and the max is those scheduled moves. Was that mm-hmm. something? Was the scheduled move as every hour on the hour? Is that, am I correct about that? At the top of the hour, they'll say there's a ten minute move. Now is open. You know, part of the yard is open for a ten minute move, and then so you can go to work out. You know, you can go to the library. You can go to a job assignment if you happen to have a job assignment. Uh, you can go uh, get commissary if the commissary happens to be open. You can go to the uh, religious services if they're open. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that. And so yeah, there's a handful of places you can be, and then once you get to your spot, you you stay there until the next move, right? And then you can move back. And that is, uh, that's the epitome of institutional living. If you have someone tell you every hour of the day, hey, you can move now. And then they tell you to stop. And then they tell you, hey, you can move now. And then you could stop. That's, and then you do that for years. I knew guys that had been at that place for over a decade. And that's yeah. just how they live. I mean, I don't, that, is, that it was incredible. So you were there for about a year. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or did you request a move or did they just, or did you get moved? I certainly requested a move. Um, I, I met with the counselor, the case manager, and you know you see where your points are at. Your points kind of dictate where you are in the security level range, whether you're at a high, a medium, a low, or mm-hmm. a camp. And so I was on the verge of being able to get my points lower enough to be at a camp. Mm-hmm. And so she told me to do a couple things, take a couple classes, do you know, make sure I don't get in trouble. And if I did so, that she would put me in, put my paperwork in to get moved to a camp. And when I finally did all those things, and she told me she put the paperwork in. I was pretty excited. I told her I wanted to go to Leavenworth. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew it was close to Kansas City. <laughs> uh, I didn't care about anything else, and so she, and I knew there was a camp there. And so I put the paperwork in. It took a handful of months for that to happen, and then I was moved again. But that's when the whole and I've heard you talk about it before to some other people, maybe James. Um, that's when part of the diesel therapy <laughs> yeah. situation came came into play, where you're just you're moved. When I was finally moved from there, you move from place to place. And you, sometimes you stay at a place for a day, a week, a month, and, until you finally get to where you're supposed to go. Yeah, and I think that's a uh, another mind torture method of you're worried because you're being moved that you're hoping, your hope is you're getting moved to the place you want to be or there, you're, you requested. But there's there's so many mm-hmm. stories of people who get, moved around for a mm-hmm. long time and they don't get to where they plan on being. They just move. And how long, how long was, how long did that take for you to get to, to Leavenworth? Oh, it, it really only took from that point, a um, handful of months. I, I can't recall exactly. Oh. I'll call it three months, but uh, I equate it to like what you're saying. It's like a letter getting stuck inside of a letter carrier's bag, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he, he's delivering the mail every day. But you're just like there, and you don't know whether that he's going to pull you out ever or not. And so, um, but my first 18 months, I was in nine institutions. That's so happened, incredible. I, I happened to be in Forest City for uh, nine months, so that was a, a, a good chunk of time. But all the other places moved, 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 moved. Well, and I tell you, Corbin, the thing about that is, is that 
you know, you hear people talk that have been in prison, and one of the things that they they try to do is get set up. You know, it sounds really weird, but you try to get your life set up that this is going to be my life for three years, six years, 10 years or whatever. But you, you want to get some kind of like foundation. It's, I know it sounds odd, but you're trying to get, okay, this is what I do and this is how I'm going to live. And this is my space. And this is how I'm going to get. And by moving all those times, I can't imagine how you felt constantly getting into a new environment, new people, uh, new places to sit, you know, that's always a big deal in prison. Where do I sit? Mm -hmm. Uh, what was that like for you to travel that many different places and so many different people? No, you're right. You want some, you want something substantial to grasp onto to make, just to make you feel safe and make you feel like, okay, I can do this right now. And so, you know, you, you, quickly figure out where everywhere you go, you got to find your people mm-hmm. and you just kind of gravitate towards them. Sometimes they'll gravitate towards you yeah. and they'll say, you know, like you've heard, Hey, you know, you look new or you just, or you just kind of like, if you've been a couple places, you just kind of say, you learn what to say. You do, you talk to people and say, Hey, you know, here's where I was at. I just got here. You know, what's, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, you ask general questions. What time's chow? Yeah. When they do count, mm-hmm. when we lock down at night, mm-hmm. hey, you guys got commissary? Mm-hmm. You, know, you just ask general questions. Even if you don't even care what the answer is, you just got to start probing a little bit just to get some feedback. Yeah, get the conversation going. And then, you yeah. know, like I always say, you know, it's it, whether you're in prison or out of prison, it's always look. It's always good to look at who's getting it, get, <laughs> getting it done right. right getting along he looks well. like he knows. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. That, that's a good thing. So, um your first day at Leavenworth, what was that like? Cool. <laughs> as cool as it could be in prison, you know, yeah. uh, because I was been in all these other places and it was easiest. I mean, I was actually, you know, when you get dropped off at the the house up top, the big house, yeah. and you take that van van ride down to yeah. the camp, mm-hmm. which is like an old school or whatever old that is. Run down uh, school. That's what it looks run like. Down, El- run down elementary school is kind of what it looks like. Little crappy, uh, horrible place in disarray, but. Uh, yeah, it, it was good because it just seemed open and free. people were walking around. Mm-hmm. The, the air seemed lighter than anywhere else I'd been. Yeah, uh, I, I know it's not for people that hadn't been anywhere else and they get there because it is depressing there too. And it certainly wasn't fun and certainly is not nice. And But for me, it was a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Um, it really, I mean, I, it's weird to hear me say that. but that's, Well, no, really I, I, oddly enough, I went to um, St. Louis for six days and I was in a county jail and it felt like six years. And I came back to Leavenworth and thought, Oh, you know, that, that whole thing with the pod and fights and people screaming at night and all that stuff. It was just, just a bizarre unsettling feeling like you'd finally hit the dirt rock bottom of wherever you were going to be in your life. But, Mm -hmm. uh, so you, I remember you Corbin at, at Leavenworth, you, you were a guy that kind of, uh, you know, I, I remember you from, I, I worked at the food warehouse and, and you were working in the garden. And when I, when I say garden, this is like, I don't how many acres do you think that was? Well, 14, 14 acres yeah. of, of hand, hand, hand hoed garden. Yeah. Yeah. It's done hand by hand. Done. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you and I kind of walked the same way every day. You'd go off of the garden. I, I went up to the food warehouse and, you know, you were kind of the guy that did that stuff and nobody really wanted to do that. That was a lot of labor. 
I met I I weighed that stuff that you brought up to the food warehouse uh, every summer, and um, it was always over a hundred thousand pounds of stuff that you had grown. Mm-hmm. What was that? One of your strategies in prison that you were going to just gut it out and do labor and busy yourself to wear yourself out? Heck yeah. I wanted to be in good shape. Yeah. And that was a way to get in shape and spend time outside the fence mm-hmm. out in the field. I knew. And uh, explain that Corbin outside the fence. What was that? Okay. So it's right outside the, the, the small fence that was around our, our beat up schoolhouse that we lived in our dorm, mm-hmm. um, the camp. It was, it was a uh, 14 acres. It was behind the, the main prison. It was on the prison grounds, but it was outside everything else. So you had a sense of freedom out there. It was, yeah. it was as nice as you could get in that place. And so what I liked about the garden though, is that you could, it, when I found out that we donated the food, the food was donated uh-huh. to homeless shelters, the churches, mm-hmm. uh, harvesters. And when I found out that's what we did with the food, I thought, what better way for me to do something bigger than myself in this place? Cause for, the longest time I had just been, well, I'm going to do push-ups. I'm going to read and I'm going to just try to survive. Mm-hmm. And now I found a way, this isn't just surviving. This is, I find a way to thrive. Like, even though I might be suffering, I could help somebody out there. And so if I knew that we were given a bunch of tomatoes, the people really appreciate them. And that's, that's a really cool thing. And so, um, but it was a lot of work and it was intense and hot and insufferable, but it was, it was a good way to stay away from the riffraff inside. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was always, you know, the, that was my take was, is that it, it made you, I always was looking for things to continue to make me feel like me. You know, yeah, yeah. you mm-hmm. don't lose yourself. You, you continually mm-hmm. try to feel like you. And, and I, to me, when you got those vegetables to me, I didn't do the hard work that you did in the, uh, in the garden. But what I liked was, is those guys backed up to that big loading dock and I loaded their trucks, but it also gave me a little bit of a freedom to talk to people that weren't in prison. And that was kind of unique. You know, the guy that was taking it to the charity, you know, you, you got to have a little bit of a conversation. It made you feel like, strangely enough, those are the things you crave to, t- to talk to people who aren't in yep. prison that are just, you know, coming by to pick stuff up. Makes it feel a little bit more normal. <laughs> we call those uh, real world encounters. Yeah, yeah, real world encounters. Exactly. <laughs> Well, you did. You were part of it, though. If you're sitting there and you you got to realize where the food was going, yeah. you kind of saw the end product. It gave you a sense of pride. Mm-hmm. It gave you a feeling of worth in a place where you don't really feel worth of anything. So when you know the, the days and and you know there's days that I have that I they're like if it's a rainy day, a cloudy day. I, I feel somehow I, I, it brings those. There's certain things that bring me back to that feel that Leavenworth feel. Uh, hard days in prison. How, what were your strategies with hard days? Well, I used the same strategy that I used to get off drugs in hard days. And it was my 15 minute plan in, in one sentence, basically that's just, how do I get through the next 15 minutes? And so if you can get through the next 15 minutes, then you'll figure out how to get through the next 15 minutes. I concentrated on learning. Uh, I just, I always like to learn about stuff I don't know about. Mm-hmm. And so I would find books to learn and then I'd also learn how to meditate better. I'm still not very good at it, but I, I, if you, as long as you practice, you know, you do that. And I liked, I like spirituality. I wouldn't say I'm religious. I, I, I went to church and stuff, but I really got into like, a, besides Christianity, Buddhism and, and, um, and Hinduism and just reading Stephen Hawking and all these different things. I, I just wanted to ingest it all. And so 
when I felt like I was doing all that, all of a sudden, oops, well, 15 minutes went by. And I guess I can get through another 15 minutes. I like that. That's, I like yeah. that. That's a and, good strategy. Yeah, that and writing. I, I like to write. And I knew I wanted to do something one day that would that would help other people. Because I knew in my heart, I didn't ever feel like I was a bad person. I just felt like I made bad choices. Yeah. And so I, I want other people to know that, hey, you can go to college and you can still be somewhat successful and you can still make a bunch of bad choices. And you can still move past it and, and make it make a difference. Well, and I think that's the thing about whether you've gone to prison or you've made mistakes in your life, you know, the mistake is the mistake. It doesn't define you. It should make you wiser. Um, and, you know, it's like Jack Nicholas says when he makes a bad shot, he doesn't want to make the same bad shot this, right the second time right again. So you that's trying to use it. I think that's you've done an excellent job, Corbin, of taking um, – I'm promoting your book again because your book is about choices. Your book's about overcoming. Your book's about dealing with uh, determination, really, and persistency, and and sticking with uh, getting through it and and taking the next step, taking action. Those are things that uh, those are life choices, and those are things that if you feel like you're stuck, the best thing to do on that is to move, take action with it, and that's what you've done. You've Every, I mean, I can feel it when I read your book, but I also was around you uh, in in the prison environment, and that's what you were also doing. You just didn't write about it; you did it. Yeah, it's all about taking action. Correct, and that's why I liked using that term "onto the next thing." Uh, there was a handful of us that just started saying that, you know, John Moore yeah. and a couple of the, Paul Hartfield. You yep. probably remember yep. some people like that. We all and several as well. We always used to say that to each other. Oh. On to the next thing, thing. whatever that is, got to get to it. And so it kept us moving. So as you got into the, the world of, of Leavenworth, what, um, how did you, you know, there, there's all kinds of different things. You, like you said, you did, you got involved with the garden. What other things did you do to keep yourself being Corbin and, and Leavenworth? I like the garden. It took up a lot of time and it took a lot of effort. So that was good. Um, and then I, I, working out, whether, you know, I'm not a guy who cared about getting big and beefy or whatever, but I like to work out. I want my heart to be healthy. I wanted to stay young for as long as possible. So working out, uh, you know, wh- whatever that was. Um, I started playing guitar more. Um, the churches like guys to play music during the services. So I got into that a little bit. And that grew into something pretty cool, you know. I started I, I played I started playing guitar when I got out of prison a little bit. Some of the little bars in this college town that I live in. Mm-hmm. So th- those things. Um, and then you know, once football season starts, you go watch football games with guys. That's a that's a good way to spend chunks of time, yeah. you know. And you find, you know, you just find things to do. You know, if you want to buy some stuff off the commissary and throw quote a party one night where you're cooking beans and uh-huh. eating chips off a table, you know, yeah. Yeah. T- table night, just <laughs> things like that. You know, just things that you never thought you'd get involved in. So as you got closer to the to the point of getting out, what what was uh, how was your mind thinking at that time? I, you know what, I was super nervous, but I was prepared because I knew that I was going to go out. I know I'm ambitious. And so I know I was going to go out and just make the right steps and just do everything appropriately. And then I also realized that I, I valued health and money. I'm sorry, health and time way more than money. Yeah. Before I, before I always valued money yeah. and, and, you flipped and it. other people's favor. Yeah. I flipped it. So 
I knew that my time was important to me and whatever I spent my time doing, I was going to do it to the best of my ability. So I, I kind of, I mean, I was nervous, but I was, you know, you're super excited sure. when that's going on. Sure. I made sure I didn't, and I know you've probably talked about this to other guys. I made sure I didn't talk about it to other guys for yeah. months before I was leaving because they might've had years to do and they don't want to hear me. They yeah. don't want to hear about me talking about, well, I got two months left and I'm going to go do this. They don't care. No. And uh, so I certainly kept it to myself unless somebody asked. Yeah. But, if you got somebody that, that you're close to and, and you can talk to about, it, of course, but just to broadcast mm-hmm. it, those guys were never very popular. <laughs> no, not at all. Cause so, I remember when I had, I had three or four years left and I heard guys talking about, getting ready to go out and get McDonald's. I was like, come yeah, on, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 no. Well, so you get out. Mm-hmm. Tell, I mean, tell me the day you got out. What was that like? So the day, I, um, weirdly, we got locked down the morning I was supposed to get out. I can't remember why. That's never and, good. And, a lockdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, I was, and so I was ready to go. Yeah. And um, Charlie Walker, you might remember yeah, him. Yeah, he literally he across my, the hallway he, from he, me. He was my bunkie at the time. And, he was like, "Bunkies, you, 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 it's time for you to go. Just go out there." And I was like, "We're locked down." I, you know, he was like, "It doesn't matter. You're getting out." And I was like, "You know, you're still feverish, and like, I don't want to do anything wrong." So I had my little bags of just a handful of things I was taking with me. I got rid of almost everything. Yeah. You know, get before you go, and and I could see from my window on the parking lot my ride out there. Mm-hmm. My mom, my grandma, my brother, my sister all sitting in there, and they kind of got out of the car and they'd walk around a little bit, and then they'd get back in the car and they were looking at their watch and. And an hour went by before I was supposed to get out at nine. And I think mm-hmm. by 10, I still hadn't got out. And I'm thinking, well, now they're going to do lunch or count or yeah. who knows. Yeah. And then, um, but I can't imagine you know, the anticipation yeah. of, of being in a lockdown and thinking, Hey, I'm supposed to be out of here. Yeah. It was like, of course, this yeah. is what happens. The day but I finally, I finally did get out. The guy, the guard came, pulled me out, checked me out of that place. Honestly, leaving was a blur. I mean, I know, mm-hmm. I know I left. And I know I walked out the door, but I never once looked back. I don't, I'll, I'll remember that place forever. I never once looked back and tried to do a goodbye or see a guy. Or I just mm-hmm. looked forward, looked at my family. They got out of the car. They were crying. They sped towards me. Yeah. We got in the car. My mom was in the back seat ringing a cowbell or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know, this is great. And my brother plays some cool Dave Matthews music yeah. or something. And I was like, this is great. They handed me some clothes that I wanted. I wanted blue pants. Yeah. I wanted white shoes. Yeah. I wanted a colorful shirt. You know, anything that's not khaki. Yeah. Not khaki. Uh, and we got out of there. I didn't know if I, I honestly didn't know if I was going home or I was going to home or, uh, to a halfway house. Yeah. I ended up going to a halfway house. Uh, they took me to Topeka mm-hmm. and I stayed at a halfway house there. But that, it, 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 yeah, it was, oh, and they were like, oh, we're so sorry. We have to drop you off at this halfway house. We lose we wish you could come home with us. And I yeah. said, this is great. Yeah. Uh, this is a okay. Yeah. So you get through the halfway house, which, uh, how do you get, how do you get back into society? How does it feel being back into society? It feels wonderful. I've had a couple of hiccups along the way. Um, but to get back into society, I, I, I started working in a lumber yard right away okay. in Emporia, Kansas. So okay. I, I moved from Topeka to Emporia. I have a friend who owns a lumber yard there and my mom lived there. And okay. so that's how I started. I worked my first year out of prison at that lumber yard and it was hard work and I loved every minute of it. I made 10 bucks an hour and I don't care. It was yeah, great. It was worked. absolutely incredible. Yeah. yeah. I made sure I did everything right. I got my driver's license immediately. I went to all the appointments I was supposed to go to. I was not messing anything up. And I was, I was a model citizen. Like that was my new goal. Um, but I knew I valued time and I knew I, I, I didn't want to work at a lumber yard forever. And I wanted to do something 
meaningful. So I immediately started writing that book when I got out. Was it always on your mind, Corbin, to write the book? Yeah, it was. And I wrote wrote a lot in prison, but it was just notes. Mm -hmm. And I scoured through things. And I I just, I didn't go out. I didn't do anything. I just wrote and I went to work. And, and um, I, funny enough, I ended up getting a job at a local newspaper in Emporia. Wow. So I thought this is, I thought this is the right jumping point, you know? This is how things are supposed to go. I'm supposed to, it's journalism. And so I worked there and, and then all of a sudden that pandemic hit and that was, so, and that, that changed everything for everybody, you know, sure. whether you, no matter your opinion on what's going on with it, it's, it happened. So, um, the, uh, the world's been kind of difficult to navigate since then, but since then I don't work at the newspaper, but I published two books since the pandemic hit. And then, um, and this audio book started to come out, but I published a book for my dad. I just want to mention it real yeah. quick because it's kind of a lot what I believe in now. He's he's a surgeon and a and a stem cell doctor up in New York City, mm-hmm. and he he believes in longevity of life. He doesn't believe in prescribing pills to help you you know to fix remedies. He's he's taking your own health in your own hands, and it fit right in with what happened when the coronavirus came around. You know, take your own health in your own hands. Don't don't wait for a vaccine. Don't worry about a mask. It's you know mm-hmm. take care. So. We published a book called Survival on an Island. It's about his uh, experience uh, with the pandemic in New York City, where it's bad when it first happened. Yeah. And we published that last year, about one year ago, almost to date. And then I then I published my book. So I just really have been concentrating on those, uh, figuring out how that works, you know, because mm-hmm. I've never done that before. As you know, that there's a lot of intricacies of trying to figure out how to write it, market it, get it edited, get it all published, yeah. all the things. Well, so, uh, and, and I, and I, the other part of it, you created Blue Press Media, which is your, your brainchild, right? Right. Yeah. Blue Press Media is the publishing company I use to publish these two books, but I also am using it because I want to promote mental, spiritual, and physical health. It's just like the best way to go forward in life. You know, if you have all those things in line Uh, and mental health is a big issue right now, you hear Simone Biles and Kevin Love and all these people talk about mental health and that's important. I think that might have been what added to my struggles in life. Uh, also, physical health is to keep you healthy and then just, just all those things. So uh, besides the books, I want to use it to start doing speaking engagements, market, uh, market, helping other companies doing marketing. Yeah. Uh, so you'd be really good at speaking. I mean, I think people would love to hear your story, but you have a unique way of telling your story, too. Can, I have a uh, my next speaking engagement. It's hard to get them right now because oh yeah, I know. Still, the whole but I, I am going down to. I'll be down in Fort Worth in a couple of weeks, uh, speaking to a middle school and also a high school down there. Cool, very so, cool, Corbin. Mm-hmm. So, what else uh, that I haven't asked you, Corbin, that I, we need to know to part with the audience? Well, you know, I guess. The, the one thing I want to impart on people is that it, it's just important to appreciate the now in life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mentioned before to appreciate time and health, but also to appreciate the now. We can't worry about what happened in the past. You can't change the way your past has been. I can't change the way mine has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't change the future. You can plan for the future, but the future is going to happen. And it, you just need to live in the right now. And the more you can appreciate the right now, the better. And so that's why I, I've kind of planned my life around that. Now I don't have the, I don't have a nine to five job anymore. I do four or five different things to make money and I'm making money at all of them, but I'm doing them because I like doing those things. 
But I can also, if I want to take a break in the middle of the day and go to the gym mm -hmm. or read a book for an hour, I make sure that I plan my life around being able to do that. I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying it's that everybody's built for that, but that's what I've done for myself. So. Well, and I think that goes back to what you just said. Your time is really important. And I think, um, you know, hopefully that's something that neither one of us lose from our experiences, that, that appreciation of having time and having your health and having your family and uh, those things that are important to you, I think you, you come at it from a little bit different perspective of how you narrow focus in on that. But I also think, you know, people just have, are going through tough times. You know, it's, it's important to focus back in on, you know, what makes you happy? What are you passionate about? Uh, what fills you up? And if, if you're not doing those things, you need to figure out a way to get there. Nope. Well said. And if the last 18 months hasn't impressed that on you, then it should have yeah. time and what you want to do in life. Don't, don't wait a year to go on that vacation or, yeah. or go get that car, you know, do what makes you happy for sure. Do it. Corbin, thanks so much for uh, being the guest here today on nightmare success in and out. Everybody. Uh, I appreciate the listening, the following, the likes, uh, subscribing, all that. It's been great. And uh, Corbin, Thank you so much for being here today. Brent, thank you. I appreciate the time. All right, man. All right.